MailChimp presents. Clusters aren't always a bad thing. Like a cluster of stars in the night sky, or those crunchy little clusters in your cereal. But you know what's never good? A clustomer. A clustomer is what happens when marketers group customers with very different behaviors into one big messy audience. Like when someone receives a new customer coupon code, but they're already an existing customer. Intuit MailChimp can help. They offer email marketing personalization tools that help marketers send product recommendations and discounts based on behavior data, turning your customers back into the unique customers that they are. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide number of customers in 2021 and 2022. I feel like I have to be an advocate for this history. And that kind of makes me, that makes me a parent in the way I grew up with. You know, our history may not be written. You may not learn about it in school, but there is a tradition here, at least in this family, in this big family of drag, that we need to keep passing on. Sasha Velour won RuPaul's Drag Race season nine in 2017 and continues to take the entertainment world by storm. She's a live performer, a cartoonist, and author. Her first book, The Big Reveal, an illustrated manifesto of drag, was released earlier this year. Sasha's work could be considered a living tribute to the three women who nurtured her early exploration of drag, both her maternal and paternal grandmothers and her mother, who died of cancer in 2015. It was her mother's loss of hair that inspired Sasha to turn her own bald head into an iconic statement piece. I've been a fan of Sasha's drag from the moment I saw her on TV. It's subversive, sometimes creepy, but always glamorous. And her unconventional take on the art form helped her succeed not only on Drag Race, but in capturing the attention of fans across the world. My name is Sasha Velour. I am a bald, fashion-y, artistic, weird queen. I am determined to take over the world with my crazy, strange, Velourian drag. And I'm not going to be stopped. America's next drag superstar is... Sasha Velour. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It, a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, I'm asking how people figure out whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking with drag superstar Sasha Velour about what she learned from the people that raised her and how she creates family through drag. Talk to me about how you describe drag, how you talk about drag. That's a big one and an important one. I feel like to be able to surprise and delight and entertain and tell our stories to the community, that is my job. So if I can make people feel excited and give people a little hope, a little joy, that's a drag queen's job well done. But I do describe it as an art form of possibility and imagination. 
we are expressing something authentic about ourselves, dramatizing it and stylizing it. Sometimes it's something that we're insecure about. You know, I put glitter on my bald head and turned it into something that is pure love, even though it came from this place of insecurity about my own baldness as a non-binary person and what that meant, how to have femininity without hair, and kind of mirroring my mom's experience losing her hair through cancer and her struggle that spoke to me and inspired me so much. So it's that expression of who you really are and then also a step into the unknown and the possible and the future. Not being grounded by reality in drag is the best part of it. Tell me how you were raised. What was your mother like? She was really intentional about how she wanted to be a parent. She waited until she was 36 to have me. Um, I was an only child, and I got so much intensity from my parents in a beautiful way. They were really thoughtful about what kind of toys they gave me, how they encouraged me, and they also were, like, up in my business, <laughs> worrying, <laughs> making me an anxious person, all, the, all those healthy, beautiful things. And she she brought her mother to come live with us. So in Illinois, I lived with my mom and her mom, Grandma Jo, who was born in 1911. She had also waited until her late 30s to have a child. And they both were really comfortable with me putting on dresses and putting on a little lipstick. They didn't want me to have Barbies because they were feeling kind of anti-capitalist at the time. <laughs> they, they said, you know, we're not going to give you figurative toys like that. We don't want to lock you into a shopping and accessories moment. So they gave me scarves. And of course, I turned the scarves into a wig, turned the scarves into a mini dress, <laughs> turned yes. the scarves into gloves. I think they knew that I was gay as a little kid, but they, they kind of didn't talk about it. They wanted me to figure it out for myself. What a gift to allow a child that and to have like that beautiful blessing of being raised by multiple generations of your family. What was your mom's mom like, your Grandma Jo? Grandma Jo was a comedian and she was completely unfazed by everything. She witnessed the Great Depression. She got herself into college in the 1930s and became a librarian and left a very religious family in Michigan and moved to Washington, D.C., and worked in a library for the government. So she was a powerhouse. Yeah. She would spy on the neighbors out her window and give us updates every night on what had been going on on the block. Oh, my God. She always would recommend old movies and old TV shows to go with whatever fantasy I was into. So she saw the drag. She brought some like it hot. She saw my love of sequins and top hats and canes. She said, let's watch The Thin Man. At one point, she said she was the internet before it existed because her job as a librarian was to remember all these things and direct people towards further stories. But I think all grandmas kind of play that role to some degree, the holders of the memory and the stories. I love that your grandma specifically was the information to help you grow this beautiful imagination, which makes so much sense because I have always thought of your drag as informed. I have always thought <laughs> whenever you do something, it feels like you use your imagination, but it's grounded in information, which I love. Did your family, when you were young, share a lot about their history? Yeah, they were really good about that. If you know about 
where the family comes from, not as like something to keep you locked into tradition, but something to kind of springboard you onto whatever's next. My grandma Jo talked a little bit about her family's background, and I mostly forgot it, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I was a little more interested in my dad's family story. Really? Because his mother, my grandma Dina, had immigrated from a Jewish community in Harbin, Manchuria. So she was born in what is now China. Her family was from what's now Ukraine. And they went to China to escape anti-Semitic pogroms. They had, like, briefly come to New York, worked in the garment industry, my fierce connection to fashion, almost died in an early factory fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, escaped back to Russia, escaped the war, ended up in China, then escaped World War II and ended up in California. So my grandma Dina, who was always, like, the draggier of the grandmas. (laughs) She set her hair every single day, wore lipstick, wore sequins and heels. She had this theory that the more like difficulty and drama you face in your life, the more dramatic you become as a person. And she was like, so I need my hour every morning to, (laughs) to set my armor for the world. Oh my goodness, I love that. But her family story really struck me trying so many times to make a better life and just moving and trying new things and no story ever really being quite done, but keep pushing forward for the next generation, I thought was so inspiring. There's so much tenacity in that. It's easy to see you as a product of the people you've come from. Those connections with their creativity and their strength and their curiosity is just so clear. Do you feel like that's super clear? I would love to be, you know, the kind of, I'll say the kind of drag queen they would be proud of, yes. who who tells my queer family story and their stories hand in hand, because I do feel like they go together. That's That's all my family. Of course. Of course it is. So what did you learn about family and about what a mother is from the women who raised you? I think so important to the mothers in my life was this struggle for protection. Mm. Like, how can we protect the next generation? And sometimes when I was a little kid, that felt kind of stifling. I remember my mom ultimately told me I I couldn't dress in drag outside of the house or I couldn't put on dresses because she was afraid of what would happen to me. For a time, I think I kind of misinterpreted where that was coming from. I see now that there was, like, fear and experience and knowledge going into that. Mm -hmm. And it it was sweet that she wanted the home to be a safe space for me to be myself. But she wanted me to be safe out in the world, too. It can be so amazing for a kid to just have one adult who loves and believes in them and who believes in their potential— and who, you know, essentially lets them know in the best way they know how, it's not you, it's out there. <laughs> yes. You know, like it's not that there's an issue with you because there's that push and pull that there is that desire to protect and the desire to nurture. You know, yeah. it's it's so hard to strike that balance. And I feel like every generation we're finding better ways. 
and we're learning yeah. much better ways to be better parents. And it seems like your grandmas did that for you when you were young by encouraging you to dress up. So do you remember any specific instances of dressing up with either one of them? I remember staying with my grandma Dina, the dramatic sequin-wearing one. Miss Glamour. (laughs) Miss Glamour for two weeks while my parents went on a work trip. And I had just watched The Wizard of Oz for the first time. And I was obsessed with the Wicked Witch of the West, like all aspiring drag queens and, you know, fierce independent thinkers. And I wanted to reenact with my grandma, the Wicked Witch of the West's death scene. And so we went through her closet. It was like a mirrored closet, which first of all, like my conservative parents had no mirrors in the house. So I was living for the theater of the mirror. Yes. And her closet was full of amazing gowns and she pulled out a black giant cloak or something and she played Dorothy. So she put on a costume too (laughs) and a hat and a wig and We performed it for my grandfather, who was not really into it, but tolerated (laughs) it enough. Right. And she mimed dumping the bucket of water onto me, and I screamed and melted into the ground and said, I'm melting, I'm melting my beautiful wickedness, and then crawled out the bottom of the dress and disappeared, leaving, you know, a puddle of fabric on the floor. It was my first dramatic reveal performance. Oh, the commitment. <laughs> the commitment. When you're playing these games or whatever, and you say, like, you want to play dress up, you you want to do these things, what did she say to you? Was it just like, yeah, let's do it? She was so gung-ho. Yeah. She always wanted to take part. It was a, a duet between the two of us, because she had this theatrical side of her, too, that probably needed an outlet as well. Oh, yeah. My grandma was a dresser. That's what everybody always said about her. You know, you know, Billy's always sharp. She always, she stays sharp. And I remember as a kid going through her closet and there were, everything was still in plastic from dry cleaners because she would wear it once, go get it dry cleaned, and then just put it right back in the closet. And it was sequins and it was animal prints. And there were things that were sheer and she would have matching jewelry pieces and and hats and shoes. And I, at the time, just rejected it, right? Like I was like, I'm not that kind of girl. You know, I'm not a clothes girl, which was really my fear of like, um, I'm not pretty enough to be seen as feminine. Mm -hmm. And it was through my grandma, you know, and noticing that like, oh, my skin is like hers. And my hair isn't different from hers. And as my body is growing, you know, it's also not that different from hers. And I think she's gorgeous. I think she's the most beautiful person I've ever met. Like, maybe, maybe that means that I am not the troll I think I am. And if I just try to see myself differently, try some things. Maybe I'll feel better. Maybe I'll look at myself and see something different. And I realized that it wasn't actually in the the things I was wearing. It was more so about the um, the performance. Mm. I, I just really resonating from everything that you said. I love that so much. And like, maybe we discover that these fashion icons 
really were collecting that for themselves because putting on those beautiful things, feeling the joy of the fabric and the jewels and the look made them feel a certain way. And that's the energy that's beautiful. Not really the way you look in the clothes, but the way the clothes make you feel. Yes. And I, I absolutely learned that from my grandmas. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Bloom Season. Sexy, sustainable, fruity, fun, inclusive. It's a clothing brand for everyone. Meet Ree Dancy. She's a fashion designer who created her self-named clothing brand after several years of not making clothes at all. She'd been putting her fashion degree to work as a styling assistant, but that usually meant making more schedules than clothes. I was in Cuba. I found this cute little boutique when I was there that was um, selling handmade lingerie, and I hadn't seen anything like it. It was these mesh pieces and like oranges and greens, so vibrant. Like, I've never made lingerie before, and I was like, oh, this is really inspiring me to like be more creative and to make things with my hands again. That trip happened just before the pandemic. Shortly after, when she found herself out of a job, she had to get creative, literally. Ree started out small, posting her designs to social media sites like Depop and Instagram. She quickly gained a following. And as her business grew, Ree chose to put sustainability at the forefront in a real way. Sustainability is becoming more and more sexy these days. Also, unfortunately, with this, I think a lot of bigger brands now have caught on to this as a bit of a marketing ploy, throwing this term onto their products as a way to sell it. For me, sustainability is a mindset. It's a journey. It's not an end product. It's something that you constantly have to refer back to and educate yourself about and listen to criticism, listen to feedback. For Ree, this means sourcing vintage or dead stock fabric that is no longer being used to help reduce waste and make the pieces more unique. She ensures that her products are made ethically in limited quantities by her small in-house team. And Ree's vision stretches beyond her label to the industry as a whole and her hopes for its future. I think just being a bit more open and supportive and instead of looking at people as your like, competitors, maybe look at them as your collaborators. How can you work together to support each other? And how can you work together to create a better sense of community within the industry? I think it would be great to see bigger brands and more influential designers and creatives also taking a similar approach and trying to just challenge the industry a bit more. Ree's designs are reflective of her childhood inspirations, as well as her social and environmental perspectives, proof of how creativity and consciousness can coexist. I even did a collection of swimsuits which were inspired by some of the costumes that I had 
when I was younger, um, we called it like metallikinis, which are like these metallic <laughs> glittery bikinis that were using like some of the fabrics that were traditionally used in my rhythmic gymnastic costumes. I'm a bit of a magpie as well, like anything shiny, silky, glittery, more is more. Learn more about Redancy and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash BloomSeason. And now, back to the episode. In addition to the women in your family, have there been other instrumental influences in your drag? I mean, so many. (laughs) I don't have a drag mother in the traditional sense that anyone taught me how to do drag or brought me into the scene. But I have some figures that I look up to as inspirations and as mothers and guides in my drag. One of my big inspirations to start doing drag was Sylvia Rivera, who founded the Star House with Marsha P. Johnson Mm -hmm. in New York in an, an abandoned East Village apartment that they were squatting in. And they repeatedly not just created a literal home for unhoused trans people, but continued to advocate for consideration for non-binary and trans people for drag queens who were being arrested all throughout the 60s and 70s, who were in jail, struggling. And then after they were released, sometimes couldn't find housing or medical care or employment. And they continued making noise through protests, through performance, through press, to try to change the narrative. And Sylvia Rivera talked again and again about drag. It's not necessarily the kind of drag that I grew up thinking about. It wasn't really about stage performance, but about authentic, fluid dressing and freedom, a kind of queer freedom around clothing that has been around for decades and isn't just about entertaining people, but about like really changing things, really taking up space and being unafraid to be yourself. And reading about her story, I actually took her account of the Stonewall riots, Mm. which she said she witnessed firsthand. Other people think she wasn't there. Maybe it doesn't matter. She told a great story that I think is full of truth. Um, And I, I tried to turn that into a comic book. That was the moment I started doing drag, drawing her face and drawing her drag family onto the page, drawing 60s cat eyes and bell bottoms and wild hair. I thought, I want to draw this on my own face and my own body too and and become part of that family and that tradition. And so I was really immersed in the politics of the 60s and that revolutionary spirit of the attitude that drag should be presentation and entertainment and radical community support and necessary political intervention all at the same time. It is. It is. I love that. So even though you didn't have a drag mother in the traditional sense, you yourself have become a mentor to many drag performers today and... I've noticed that you do things a little differently. Like, I know that your mentees don't share your last name, which is a pretty common thing in drag families. So can you talk to me a little bit about your approach to creating family through drag? 
I just didn't want to encourage people to take my last name. I know that's a <laughs> that's a drag tradition, and that's typically what it means when you're someone's drag mother. First of all, my mom did not take my dad's last name when they got married, so I have a little sense of like everyone needs their own identity, even yes. if we're family. Like, let's just be siblings, family members, without it being hierarchical. Like, I don't know what I'm doing enough to tell you how to do it yourself. <laughs> We're just going to be figuring it out hand in hand. Now I think I have to em- embrace my elder status. Yeah. Even though my advice is always, like, do you. Like, do it your own way. There are no rules. But I think in advocating for that history... There's so many voices saying that there are no traditions in drag, that this is something new, that this is something materialistic or superficial mm-hmm. or a parody. Like, I feel like I have to be an advocate for this history. And that kind of makes me, that makes me a parent in the way I grew up with. Mm-hmm. You know, our history may not be written in the books. You may not learn about it in school, but there is a tradition here, at least in this family, in this big family of drag, that we need to keep passing on even if it's just through the oral tradition, although that's one of the reasons I wrote a book, too. So I'm like, it will be in the history books, one way or another. It will be. Do you see any overlap between activism and creating non-traditional family? Mm. Wow. Absolutely. I think the best, most effective activism thinks of itself like a family. Mm. Creating that home and that safety being that like voice of protection for vulnerable people out in the world, the caretaking of people on an individual level is it is political. And I do think storytelling is a big part of activism too. That's how you get that message out there. Mm-hmm. How you let people know that like no battle that we're fighting today is new, really. Every struggle has a deep history, and a story can reveal the truth of that, and I think can sometimes point to possible solutions. Yeah, I agree. What are the lessons you've learned from your mom and your grandmas that help you support other people today? My grandmas and my mom definitely taught me a lesson of encouragement and the power cheering for someone can have on a life. The way that my grandmas especially would just applaud my little shows that I gave at every turn put in my mind the possibility that I could be an entertainer, that I could be an artist, that I had something to share. And I try to do that on every level in the community, with the next generation, with my peers, with my friends. And especially from my mom, I learned about the role of the editor. My mom was an editor. She worked for a couple publishing houses and also just worked freelance. Someone whose work maybe isn't seen in the final product, but who helps the speaker, the star, refine their voice, rethink the details and make every little piece go together that much stronger. And I know like, you know, I'd be nothing without the people who've played a role in editing my my drag. And like, maybe that doesn't get the top billing in the show, but those roles are essential. And I I want to help be be that for other people and shape that, be an editor, a mother for them as well. I love it. 
We've obviously been talking a lot about parenting and mentorship in the drag and artistic sense. But I'm curious, have you ever considered becoming a parent in any other sense? I have decided for the time being that I'm not in a position to have a child, which is hard because I I think when I was little, I imagined one day I, I would have a child. And maybe that could be possible in the future. I think even though, you know, I'm about to turn 36, I still feel like there's time. People are living longer. We're not getting any money till way later in life. We're going to have to adjust and figure out ways. You know, I can be spry <laughs> later in life. I plan on wearing my heels and putting on makeup till I'm in the grave. Just like the grandmas. <laughs> Just like the grandmas. So I think there'll be energy to be a parent later on. That's what I'm telling myself, so I don't have to make that decision right now. I mean, come on, you live in New York. In New York, having a kid at 40 is is practically being a teen mom. Like, <laughs> I do love that. I think that you're going to get to have whatever you want. And if this is what you really want, then I don't think anything will keep you from it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. You know what's resonating for me right now is thinking about what a great parent you would be. (laughs) And I hope you know (laughs) that the skills and the intelligence and the thought behind it is all there. So if that is something that you want, you know, I think you would be very good at it. That child would be very lucky. Is there anything in particular that you're like, man, I really want to be able to pass this on to a kid. It's less like a lesson and more an openness, a receptivity. I almost feel like it would change me to be that open to a child, to see like what they need and who they are and adjust. Yeah. Like I feel like that that is the lesson that, you know, I saw my parents bringing to my life the way that especially my dad, who I'm, I'm really close with still. He's kind of my only remaining family member. But he has become so open to queer politics, to the history of drag. And I love seeing the way it changes the way he thinks about things. He's a, a different person than he was when I was young. And he was a, a great man then, too. But I think that is something that I would like to bring to raising a child that excites me. Yeah. Like, th- that unknown. I love it. Every conversation I have about parenting seems to take me deeper into the same unknown that Sasha is talking about here. It's so beautiful to see what becomes of a child like Sasha, someone raised with so much access to their full self, someone taught not to be afraid of mistakes. They become people who use their gifts to change the world around them. But a big part of me remains curious about the other side of that coin. What is it like as a parent to have to battle the world so hard in order for your child to live their freest self? It doesn't seem easy, but when you get results like Sasha Velour, I see why you would do your best. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. 
Our associate producers are Marina Henke and Yinka Rickford Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davy Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers. Our executive producer is J.N. Barry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. 